You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. A hybrid of the movies Crumb and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, the documentary You're Gonna Miss Me tells the story of counterculture icon Rocky Erickson, who struggles with LSD, schizophrenia, and the Texas police have made him one of the music's legendary tragic figures. Today, Erickson, who used to front the psychedelic rock band The 13th Floor Elevators, collects junk mail by the stack and is kept under lock and key by his mother, who refuses him any treatment beyond love prayer, and a view of psychiatry gleaned from the television show Frasier. With us today is Kevin McAllister. You're going to miss me's director. Kevin McAllister, welcome to film school. Thanks so much for having me. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. How are you guys? We're doing real well. Where are you? Where did we reach you? I live in Los Angeles. Oh, so very good. Not no, too far. So you're not from Texas. <laughs> I actually grew up in Dallas, lived there for about five years after college, so I spent a good part of my life there, but I've lived in California for about eight years now. It's Texas, where you first heard about uh, Rocky Erickson? Yeah, when I was in high school, I was a big sort of music fan, music collector, and he was this sort of uh, mythical figure, sort of like the woman who lives down the street with a hundred cats that yeah. <laughs> you, you know is there, but you don't really want to approach, and I'm not quite sure if she, she's still alive. Yeah, He was very well known uh, in Texas, perhaps more so than, than the rest of the country, and so I'd, I'd known about him since I was cognizant of any rock besides Van Halen. What inspired you to make a documentary about him? Was there a point in time where you, you had enough information you said this is a great story? Or? Well, I thought the, the story of his tragic downfall from being you know, this highly influential musician to being, um, in 1969, he was arrested for a minor marijuana possession charge and pled insanity and was committed to this sort of medieval institution in East Texas for five years. It was at the Rusk? That's right, the Rusk State Hospital. State Hospital. When he came out, he struggled mightily with various states, forms of mental illness. When we started filming in the situation where he was, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, living in a federally subsidized apartment with 10 televisions going out all the time to drown yeah. the voices in his head. So originally I thought that was going to be the film, and I thought that was, that was you know, obviously a very interesting story and sort of wondered why no one had ever done a good documentary on that story. But as we got further into shooting it, it became clear that Rocky couldn't, you know, he was an unmedicated schizophrenic, it became more clear that he couldn't tell his own story, so it became more about those around him and how they reimagined the story and appropriate it and use it to their own. So it ultimately became more of a movie about his mother and brother and their relationship to him than about him he himself. That's Evelyn and Sumner. That's right. How did you get access to Rocky? I heard it was difficult even to get a phone call into him. That's correct. When, when I first thought about making the film seriously, I found out that the, really the only way to get to him was through his mom. He was listed in the Austin phone book, but he would never pick up his phone for anyone except for his mother. He had caller ID, and he wouldn't answer the, answer the door for anyone except for her. So I met with her and sort of talked to her over the course of about a year about the film, and about uh, doing it, and she agreed. And she said that Rocky agreed, but I had never talked to him. So when we started, we got to Austin and started filming, was really the first time that I met him. Mm-hmm. And it, was a little, it was a little unclear, as crazy as it sounds, for the first four weeks whether or not he was actually even going to participate. Is that where you took the footage, walking into that flat there where he's turning on all his uh, electronics? That's right. Yeah, that was, um, that was, I think, the third time we shot him. 
um, and that was in, would have been in the summer of 1999. Just to describe to our listeners, it's a, a din of electronics he had going in his room when he, had he a arrived. Keyboard and TVs and radios yeah, and radios, and I, it sounded like there's even some sort of feedback going on back there. It must have been about six or seven things all at once. Yeah, it's amazing when you first experience it because he, you know, he walks in and turns on the TV as, as a lot of people would do, mm-hmm. and then he goes to the next thing and the next thing, and you're just wondering sort of how many how many of these could there be. And then you start looking at the connections between the two. I think at one point he had a microphone uh, to an amp that was plugged into the TV so that the TV would be twice as loud, but then it fed back. And it was just sort of connections between all of them were, were and, kind of amazing. And then he puts on sunglasses and he, and he falls asleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he could only, according to his mother, he could only fall asleep with the din on. When she came in and turned it off was when he woke up. Yeah. We're speaking with Kevin McAllister, the director of You're Going to Miss Me. I just want to mention that when he was at Rusk State Hospital, that's where he received the electroshock therapy. Well, he was, uh, or was it? He, he was temporarily committed to a hospital in Texas mm-hmm. for that, which is where he received most of the electroshock treatment. Mm-hmm. He uh, received some electroshock at Rusk, although the records are that they keep there are pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. And they stopped giving electroshock in late 1970. He was committed in, in October 1969. So he would have received a small amount there, but mostly Thorazine and other sort of psychotropic treatments. He was also, as, as um, you know, in a band. They did sort of like the therapeutic stuff. He was in a band at the hospital, which performed on East Texas television, which was the sort of holy grail footage that we never found for the film. Oh, is that right? Yeah. The great thing about the band was that the tambourine player was deaf. So if you hear recordings <laughs> of them, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a sort of like a, meta, a sort of pre-drum and bass uh, <laughs> uh, staccato rhythm yeah. section. Did, did uh, you ever find out if, if Rocky enjoyed playing with them, or is, is that something he doesn't like to talk about? As you can imagine, he's not particularly loquacious about anything. Yeah. Uh-huh. In subsequent interviews, sort of just after the fact of Rusk, he said that he didn't enjoy playing with them because he wasn't able to sort of like do the quality of music that he was accustomed to. And he claimed at the time that he didn't do originals with them, although I found a recording where they did a couple of his sort of post-Elevators original songs. Kevin McAllister of the film, You're Going to Miss Me, which is a documentary about Rocky Erickson. You know, I just want to go back to a little bit of this. He's taken hundreds of acid trips. Yes. He gets busted on a pretty bogus bus by the, the Texas police. They're after him anyway because he's an outspoken acid head. Exactly. And then they give him electroshock Institutionalize therapy. him in electroshock and, and Thorazine, I'm not really familiar with what that does exactly. How would it compare to, to an acid trip? Pretty brutal drug, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Obviously, there's no clear answer as to, to what led him into the conditions he ended up in. Yeah. But there's some question. Apparently, an LSD trip, if you were going to give a clinical diagnosis, uh, appears very much to a, to a therapist or a, a psychiatrist as the symptoms of a schizophrenic episode. Right. So some, there could easily have been some confusion as to um, whether you know, he was actually having an acid trip or he was a schizophrenic if he, in fact, was committed while high on LSD. Yeah. That's sort of the, um, the conspiracy theory among his friends. I personally believe that schizophrenic, schizophrenic is a genetic thing and that there, there are hundreds of people who have taken hundreds of acid trips who have not developed schizophrenia, so it, it could be, it's obviously a trigger. But uh, I think that Whatever caused his condition, I think that clearly the shock treatment and Thorazine and the incarceration, especially the incarceration, made it much worse. Yeah. Well, and let's be clear, watching the film, it's fairly evident to me anyway that the family has mental health issues all over the place. Right. 
if you're speaking of the genetic component here, I think it's pretty clear that Evelyn has some serious issues. And I know there's a condition, a name for the condition that she manifests in the film where she is piling stuff all over the house and she has this sort of compulsive behavior of writing about things under photographs that there's got to be, that's a condition. I know, I don't know the name of it, but there's a, that's a mental health issue right there. Did you find it easy to deal with her, or was she? Did she ever have any resistance to what you were doing? Because you have her in some pretty revealing moments. Yes. absolutely. She was very open, and she was very kind to us at all times. I think once the sort of guardianship battle that ensues between one of Rocky's brothers and his mother, and uh, or at least a sort of like an intense argument over his care, and once that sort of began to happen. I think that she became, because I was trying to stay objective on both sides and film both sides, yeah. and she knew that, I think that she sort of, at times, was suspicious that I was, in fact, you know, favoring favoring her brother, her son, or whatever, and, yeah. and voiced those. But in general, she was great and very open, obviously. Well, I have to say, her there's a sort of a blithe nature to the way she, there's some uh, sort of an oblivion to what's going on. Mm-hmm. It, this sort of innocent oblivion as to her her son's condition, and how she feels about it, and how it's, I guess it's in God's hands in her mind, or right. is that is that a fair way to put it? I, I think so. I mean, I think, again, it, I sort of became interested in how she was obsessed with reimagining the past, yeah. writing it. You know, at the very beginning, she talks about how she's undertaken this huge cardboard project, which you were alluding to earlier, where she has written the entire family history on huge planks of cardboard with photographs and, and writing. Um, how she did that to prove to herself that she'd been a good mother. Mm-hmm. And how she had basically reimagined her care of Rocky now as a sort of further effort in that in, to that end. And she had a career in music. She did. She had a short. I mean, she was. You know, she put out a, a, a local in Austin, Texas, a local uh, forty-five single, and was on television a few times. And was, in my opinion, a fantastic singer, but never really had a career mm-hmm. other than that. As far as his father goes, he didn't seem to be very talkative. Oh that, my God, that's yeah. an understatement. Yeah. yeah. Did he ever, at least on what you captured, did he ever open up at all to the family, did they say? Or was he just, was he being shy there in the footage you captured, or no, was that, that was, him? I think, I, that was, I think, a fair sort of uh, yeah. portrayal of his character. You know, obviously he was more relaxed when the camera wasn't rolling, but that was about how much he talked. Wow. Very shut down, sentence-long, lawyerly answers to everything. Yeah. Was, was alcohol ever uh, an issue? With yes, him? he was a serious alcoholic, yeah. and I think he... When we filmed him, he probably still was. He passed away in um, November. I don't want to give anything away, but there's a scene near the end of the film that's quite revealing. Um, and I, I think, you know, the living arrangement that he, he has. At right. The, and that was a shock. But yeah. That was it, very nicely done, yes, to my compliments. I, yeah, it really was. It was very revealing on many levels. And uh, So Sumner is the brother who plays the tuba. That's right. That was a nice uh, juxtaposition, too, because you have all this uh, craziness with Rocky. You and have the, all the great footage of him clutter, early on yeah. with the elevators. And then and then suddenly you're in a concert hall. That's, yes, that's exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah, and everything is ornate and rigid, and, and the, uh, the parts are let's say, written down as opposed to what Rocky was doing. you think his brother was responding to Rocky in any way? Is there some sibling rivalry there that he's really the musician of the group, the, the two-best? I think, well, very much so responding to it in that, you know, he, as a child, you know, that was when Rocky had just gotten out of Rusk, when he was a teenager. And you know, when you're a teenager, you kind of hate all your siblings and your parents anyway. <laughs> and so to have your, you know, brother be a 
sort of a speed-addicted uh, former rock star who occasionally comes in and steals all your clothes so he can buy drugs, and occasionally leaves the door open so that you know the dogs kill your pet hamsters. Um, you know, he was anxious, I think, to get out of there. So his relationship to Rocky then was not to appreciate his music, but just to, as a you know a sibling that he wanted to get away from. And I think also you know the, um, the obvious sort of whether or not it's real, but you know perceived persecution of Rocky led him far away from from pop music into band. And I think he just wanted to get out of Austin. And I know that when he first he he was um, given given the first chair too by the Pittsburgh Symphony when he was eighteen wow. uh, by Andre Previn. Wow, um, which goodness. is sort of unheard of. That's that's very impressive. Um, and you know, when he first got to Pittsburgh, there was this big story about him. Uh, you know, how he was his prodigy and whatnot. And there was a little sidebar about his brother, the rocker, and it had all the you know the, all the horror stuff. And he said he was just sort of mightily embarrassed to be with all these like serious you know serious in quotes classical musicians and to have that story pop up next to it. Um, hmm. So I think for you know at least first you know. Ten years of his uh, adult life, he was very much interested in getting away from Rocky and from the family in Austin. I want to remind our listeners: we're speaking with Kevin McAllister. The film is "You're Going to Miss Me." It's the story of Rocky Erickson. I want to also mention that he has four other brothers. He has five brothers altogether. That's correct. And from the film, it appeared to me that there were other, at least uh, two or three of the other brothers who had some serious alcohol slash drug related problems and really had kind of drifted into uh, the dark side of life in, in, in many ways. What was the story with the, the, the brother with the eye patch, who was sort of siding with the mother in this? Right. There's two, so there's two, brother, two other brothers that appear in the film. The fourth brother is named Ben, and he declined to appear in the film. He lives in Austin. The second oldest brother is Michael, um, who was an elevator's roadie for a while okay. um, and ended up doing prison time several times for being a drug dealer. Mm. Um, I think for a time he was... Um, one of the, the larger South Austin drug dealers. Was he supplying Rocky at any time? I don't think so. Okay. Um, and he, his last sentence ended, I think, in 93, and he got out and cleaned up, and now is a, you know, has a family and goes to church and does all the stuff that you do when you stop being yeah. a dealer. Um, and Don is the middle brother, and he's the one that you're referring to. Um, he was a serious alcoholic for many years. In 1983, he had a um, basically a brain aneurysm, but it's a condition <laughs> called arteriovenous malformation, which is a rupture in the brain, and you go into a coma for a while. That put him in a coma, I think, for a few weeks. He came out and became a more serious alcoholic and cleaned up, I think, in 88. But, you know, he's obviously very open about his struggles with addiction and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And his sort of, uh, you know, also how he relates, what he talks about in the film is sort of how he relates his struggles with the struggle of Rocky and how he always felt like, you know, nobody nobody really cared about him in the family because right. Rocky was sort of this, you know... The Prince, the Prince right. Rocky. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Has Rocky seen the film? Has mm-hmm. had any reactions to it, if he has? He has. In fact, it was the first, uh, when I finished it, um, we, we showed a rough cut at South by Southwest last year, um, and then uh, spent you know, maybe three more months editing and showed the completed version at the London Film Festival. But before we showed it at South by Southwest, which is in Austin, I screened it for Rocky and Evelyn and Sumner each, and those were by far the most nerve-wracking screenings that yeah, I, I had. I can um, imagine. Because, you know, obviously there's some, Pretty hardcore stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. And, each one of them separately. Uh, I, I screened for Rocky and Sumner together, and uh-huh. Evelyn by herself. Did they have any comments about it? Well, I've got to start, before the reaction to her singing at the Rocky um, Erickson get together mm-hmm. gathering. I'm just curious how she, did she react to that at all? I mean, the the one where uh, her uh, Rocky's son is there and talking about how he hasn't seen his father. Yes, yes. yes. I mean, I think the 
there there are a couple of scenes, that one in particular, and there's one where the three brothers are sort of arguing about her in a park. Mm-hmm. And I think those scenes in particular were hurtful to her because she had not seen them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think she knew the general sort of tide of feeling against her, but to you know have to be confronted with that in in that way, I clearly is you know sort of yeah. put, put her back. In general, after I screened the film for her, she was very magnanimous about it. Felt she was portrayed fairly, ultimately. But it's just, you know, those those were the moments where it was tied was sort of most against her. Mm-hmm. And I think those probably were the, the hardest for her to watch. Mm-hmm. Rocky said he loved it. And he's actually yeah. come to a bunch of screenings. He actually participated in a Q&A a few weeks ago. He's been totally supportive of it from the beginning. Yeah. Now, he seems to be getting better by the end of the film. Has he, has he continued? There's a very sobering kind of tone to the end of the film, especially where Sumner is concerned. Right. I did want to have the ending sort of a bit ambiguous in that you kind of know where it's going, but you don't know exactly. Um, And I think that's sort of played out in what's happened. Sumner ended up quitting uh, his job with the Pittsburgh Symphony and moving to Austin and essentially was Rocky's primary caretaker from the time he did that. Rocky continued to approve and started performing again. Um, I've not seen them, so I don't don't know uh, how good his performances are, but I hear that they're great. So Sumner, until just recently, was uh, trying to start his own pop band called the Techcentrics, hmm. and basically spent most of his time uh, managing, or, or not managing, but you know, handling Rocky. Mm-hmm. Um, he just recently had the, the guardianship rescinded, I think, in an effort to, to turn that over to professional managers and such. And where's Evelyn? Uh, she's still in Austin, and she sees Rocky you know, maybe once a month. They don't have anywhere near the kind of relationship they did. Did Rocky move back into his apartment again? He moved into an apartment, but a different one. But it still sort of has, you know, it's got a couple TVs going. And um, <laughs> I, I remember I went to visit him uh, sort of after the film was done. He had built this amazing sort of Richard Dreyfuss in, in Close Encounters-esque um, <laughs> sculpture of cigarette uh, butts in, his, in a very large ashtray. Yeah. I think he since quit smoking. But um, <laughs> it was uh, well, it was the one thing that I've seen since, since I quit filming that maybe I want to start again. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, his music is his one... Oasis. Exactly. There's that one scene where he's on the balcony um, playing this the, the guitar, solo guitar, and he's singing a song that is telling you what is going on in his head. Exactly. In, in, in a way that is so much has so much more clarity than anything else he could articulate in the rest of the film. It's really quite moving. I mean, to to, to sort of inside of him there is this still he has this ability to be able to articulate his inner demons and in a way that. Uh, really is affecting. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's funny when we, he, he played that song and that's a song that I've never heard him perform before. Yeah. And so I have to, I have to feel like you know, that was you know, not an accident. That that particular song was what he chose to play. Yeah. It does, it does seem to articulate quite well sort of his, the sense of loss that he has. Yeah. Yeah. We're speaking with uh, Kevin McAllister, the director of You're Going to Miss Me, a documentary about Rocky Erickson. Has this film changed you at all? Uh, did you go into it one way and come out another after seeing uh, the uh, the Erickson family? I, I don't think it's changed me in, in any sort of like, um, you know, profound way that I could articulate. Yeah. I think, you know, in, in obviously, I think it's maybe a better filmmaker. I think it's, um, I've met all sorts of interesting people, and that experience, you know, was invaluable. But in terms of, you know, I grew up in Texas, and so sort of, I'm sort of, a lot of the the, the culture, and especially of like, you know, Rusk and stuff, I sort of knew, so mm-hmm. it didn't sort of change my outlook on anything. Mm-hmm. But I would also 
say that um, you know earlier when I said that um, sort of the, the film became about how people react to, story, to Rocky's story and appropriate it for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I think clearly, you know, I did that too, yeah. and and so the film's not about that. But I think on sort of a not to put too fine a point on it, but on yeah. sort of meta level, I think um, that is present also in the movie. Well, you said it's made, made you a better filmmaker, and I just wanted to kind of follow up on that. You are in the middle of some scenes uh, in the, in their lives mm-hmm. that I don't know how much you could have planned to have been there, but you were there at some very important, pivotal points in the story where you're you're right there in the room. And is that a function of you being a better filmmaker, learning to be somewhere uh, at the the right time, or how how you planned this thing? Or that, and also uh, when I when I first started, this is my first uh, film, and. So I really had no, absolutely no clue what I was doing yeah. at all. Yeah. I went to Austin for one summer, shot a bunch of stuff, and came back and tried to edit and realized it was all basically worthless. Oh. Um, and so as the film progressed, I had a better sense of how to shoot stuff yeah. and sort of what story you were following. And just ultimately, it all boils down to confidence, being able to make decisions quickly and stick with them, yeah. and also having the confidence to change them later if you end up making the wrong decision on the spot. But I think those were the sort of major ways. I want to thank you very much. We've been speaking with Kevin McAllister. The film is You're Going to Miss Me, the story of Rocky Erickson. And I have to tell you very quickly, I'm a music fan. I'm a huge music fan. I didn't realize the importance of Rocky Erickson. And one of the great values of the film is you see his place in rock history and you see him as a human being and you see a, a common story. You see a story of humanity, if, the, if you will, in this film. And I want to thank you for that. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah. I'm a big fan of you guys. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.